But I did know the difference between sales and marketing, and that's that's one thing you need to learn early. There are many, many differences. There's not the same thing. Most people think sales and marketing are the same thing. But marketing has most is mostly uh, incoming, and sales is mostly outgoing. What is up, you sexy bastard? It is your boy Gelato, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Bob Metcalf. He is the co-inventor of the Ethernet. Yes, he has helped it so that we can all be online. It's wild. This guy is funny, he's very smart, and crazy rich. Now, he invented the Ethernet in 1973 while working at Xerox Park. He didn't actually get rich from doing that. He got super rich by creating a company called 3Com, where he sold the Ethernet and other products, which became a multi-billion dollar company. He also tried many other careers after that, which is really interesting, being a journalist, a VC, a professor, and now he's actually looking for his next job. If you've ever wanted to learn about the invention of something massive like the Ethernet and having multiple interesting careers, you're going to love this episode. In this conversation, here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Number one, the competitive advantage of having a time machine. Two, how he got mentored by Steve Jobs. And three, why it's important to learn sales and how he messed up two chances to sell the Ethernet to IBM. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Quick disclaimer, this is the full recording of my interview with Bob Metcalf. This was originally for our YouTube channel where we put out a video called Asking 80-Year-Old Millionaires If It Was Worth It. It's gone viral. It's got over a million views. But this is actually the full interview with Mr. Metcalf. I thought the content was so fire that even though if the audio is a little bit off, I think you're going to love it anyways. Just a quick heads up. Before we dive into the show, go to appsumo.com. Sign up for the newsletter. I know you already are, but if you're not, it is the place to buy the best software tools for your online business at a great price. That is appsumo.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Domino Connection of USA. He left a review saying, a fresh perspective. This podcast has unique guests who help me see my life from a fresh perspective. I feel like I am a fly on a wall just taking a great conversation. There is no agenda from Noah. He brings his full self and he gets his guests to share their wise and useful ideas for my life and business. Thank you so much, Domino. I hope you're the founder of Domino's because I love eating that stuff. And I love every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you're checking out the show. I check every single one of them. How did you make your money? How would you answer that? I invented something. Then I started a company to commercialize it and succeeded and went public and sold some stock. Now I have more money than I can ever spend. But the, a longer version of that story is I went to school for 23 years in a row. 23 years, from kindergarten through PhD. And, uh, but I started working way before I got my PhD. So I started working, well, forever I worked, but I uh, got technical jobs starting in 1965. I started writing computer programs for money at the Raytheon Corporation while attending MIT. So I had a full-time job starting my sophomore year in college as a programmer. And then as a programmer, so the way that you made all your money was inventing the thing I think, Xerox, at Xerox? The thing I invented, it's called Ethernet. I invented it at Xerox Research in Palo Alto, California on May 22nd, 1973. I'm guessing you remember the moment or the day? No, because what I just said is sort of a lie, because nothing like that is ever invented in a day. I ended up being marketing a guy at my company. And I needed, one day in the 80s, I needed a hook for a publicity event. And so I said, yeah, when was Ethernet invented? And I, then I began a process that lasted a week where I tried to figure out when it was invented. And the answer is, if it was invented on any one day, it would be May 22nd, 1973. But it, the invention started way before that and was way after that. But that was the peak day. I guess what, I'm curious. So you made your money inventing something, but you invented it as an employee? Yes, I did. I invented it as an employee of Xerox Corporation. I'd like to correct what I said, by the way. I've, I've, 
I didn't make much money by inventing Ethernet. I made most of it by selling Ethernet, which is different. Then one fed into the, led into the other, but it was the selling process which took the time and the effort. So I've been to every Ramada Inn in, in the world <laughs> selling Ethernet. I'm curious to hear about spending it. You have more than you can spend and what that's like. But as you invented it, you, as an employee, do you think, oh, I'm going to get rich off this? Or as you were creating it, like, hey, this is just part of my job? No, I, um, I was employed by Xerox. They paid me well. I, I had a lot of fun there and invented this thing and then left Xerox and returned to propose that they license me the patents. In fact, license everyone the patents in order to make Ethernet into an industry standard. We figured we would have to make it a, not a proprietary product of the Xerox Corporation. And they agreed. So uh, my company became one of hundreds to license Ethernet from Xerox. Why'd you leave? I left Xerox twice. And uh, it had to do with career considerations. I was, I was there two segments of four years, in research for four years, in development for four years. And uh, just got done with what I was doing, and it was time to move on. And then when you're in Silicon Valley, the, you start companies. And when you're in Silicon Valley, you're supposed to start companies. So in 1979, I left Xerox with the intention of pursuing entrepreneurial interests. And I had no clue what it would be, but a few months later, I started 3Com. How did you even figure out how to start it? I was in Silicon Valley, surrounded by people who knew how to start companies. So I got a lot of advice from VCs. And, and Steve Jobs, he called me in, in uh, I mentioned him because he was one of my mentors, an odd mentor situation since I'm 10 years older than he was. Uh, he called me in uh, four, five days after I founded 3Com and invited me to join Apple, and I turned him down. And then he did a very interesting thing. He helped me for the next 10 years, all through the 80s, to build my company. He, in other words, he didn't get all, all huffy and yeah. storm off. He was great. Why do you think he helped you? I don't know. I think he, something about entrepreneurship, he liked that. And uh, he could see that I, I had just founded the company a few days before, so I guess he was interested in that what would come of it. <laughs> Plus, I pitched him. I wanted to sell him a product. We had lunch on Stevens Creek Boulevard in Cupertino, California at a, a hippie restaurant where everything was vegan. And uh, I proposed that I would sell him a network to this company he had called Apple. And they had these Apple IIs. So I said, you need a network. And I, here's the, I happen to have a design for a network for you. And I call it Orchard. You see the little marketing flair yeah. there? He listened to that proposition for about four nanoseconds before returning to the discussion of my becoming a networking guy at Apple. He had no interest whatsoever in buying Orchard. I think maybe the, the fact that I tried to be a marketing person and call it Orchard may have offended him. Yeah. I don't know. What kind of advice did he give that anything surprising about what he would advise you on versus what you were doing? I've come to realize this uh, retrospectively, uh, the key thing he taught. Uh, most people think that Steve Jobs is the best... CEO in the history of the world. But an interesting fact about that is that he founded Apple in 1976 and he became CEO in 1996. And so what he did in Silicon Valley is uh, he appreciated adult supervision. So from the very beginning, he had people involved in his company who ran it with him, for him. And so I did that. As soon as I raised some venture capital, went out and recruited Bill Krauss to come and be our CEO, to have some adult supervision. Yeah. I didn't know how to run a company, let alone start a company. Yeah, I, I think the two things you said that are really, really resonated with was one is selling, not inventing. Like anyone can invent, but to actually get people to buy and make it a business takes selling. Yeah. And 
I just had this realization over and over is that it's, it's very hard to be successful alone, right? Like you did have to, Steve found people to support him in different areas. You found, sounds like this Bob Krause guy. When you, what made you think to start this business over other things? And like, did you expect it to be as big as it got or what was the expectation for you? Well, as a grad student, so I graduated from MIT in electrical engineering and management in 1969 and went to Harvard, immediately hated Harvard. But the project that was funded at our, at both Harvard and MIT was a thing called the ARPA Computer Network, named after the Advanced Research Projects Agency, the Department of Defense, ARPA. A, a wise graduate student will choose a field where there's money because that will fund the PhD research that you do. And so I got into networking right then. And so then I was in networking for four years with, I worked at MIT, but got my degrees from Harvard and then uh, went to work for Xerox. And then I spent eight years at Xerox building an internet inside of Xerox. So then when I left Xerox in 79 to start my own company, what, what company was I going to start? It had to have something to do with all that, and it did. So the company was called 3Com, Computer Communication Compatibility. And our goal was to network um, diverse computers together. And most people forget this, but prior to the internet, every computer manufacturer made their own networking. If they made any networking at all, they were all incompatible. So the 3Com was founded to solve that problem. And we were the first company to ship TCP IP, which is the uh, core uh, protocol of the internet. And we were the first ones to ship a commercial version of that. And then we did Ethernet and we adopted Unix and MS-DOS and off we went. That is wild. Because <laughs> I think today people take it for, I mean, I know I remember, I mean, obviously not right at the beginning when you were doing it, but like, I remember that having to run Ethernet cables. Like I, I worked at a company where I, we specialized in uh, garages, like uh, car shops, running Ethernet cables through the building. Well, there's a funny irony there. When I was first out selling Ethernet, people said, no one is going to use your network because they have to install wiring. And they don't, it's expensive and difficult to install wiring. So you're going to have to figure out how to get Ethernet to run on the electrical wiring, which is already in the building. And so we tried, by the way, for uh, six months, and we couldn't make it work. It was too hard, a problem. So we went back to selling people the idea they needed to string cables specific to Ethernet. The irony is that today there's a standard called power over Ethernet, where people are not, we're now running, they're not running Ethernet on the power cables, they're running power on the Ethernet cables. Ha <laughs> ha! Do you remember your first salary when, after you graduated? From college? Yeah. I do remember my sophomore year, I had started work and I was uh, a programmer and uh, I hadn't gotten into hardware quite yet, so I was still in software. And uh, my dad, who was a gyroscope technician in the aerospace industry on Long Island, saw my pay stub. And I was making more money than him. And his reaction was funny. He was happy he had succeeded. <laughs> In other words, one of his goals was to launch his family. And his son was now making more money than he was. And that was my sophomore year, 1966. And then what did you expect 3Com to become? It started life as a uh, consulting company, immediately profitable. I hired, a, recruited a dozen people, and we did consulting on networking. And we were... Uh, profitable and we all had company cars. I had a Mercedes and Greg had a BMW, I remember. But then we noticed that other people were starting Silicon, classic Silicon Valley startups with venture capital. And one of them was Ungerman Bass, which you've never heard of, but 
Ralph Ungerman and Charlie Bass and I discussed starting a company together, but our egos were too big, so we started two separate companies. And then he raised venture capital. And then he started bragging about having invented all the stuff that I invented. So it annoyed me. So then I put together a business plan in, in uh, September of 1980 and began uh, raising money. In February of the next year, I raised $1.1 million for a third of the company, which are, these are laughable numbers today. Yeah. How much did that third go on to be at its peak? It's kind of funny. Remember, you don't remember the internet bubble. You probably weren't born yet. Right at the, I was in high school. But there were a lot of super valuable companies, and mine was among them. And for a few nanoseconds in 1999, with $5.7 billion in revenue, and I had left the company. I wasn't there. It was worth $52 billion, inflation adjusted. But only for a few nanoseconds. If you look at the graph, it goes like this. And I didn't even get half of that $52 billion. It was much later. That you made a lot of money even later from that? No, I made my money before that, but nothing like $52 billion. I like to say that my fortune is a um, significant fraction of a millicates. What's that? There's a prefix called milli, like millimeter. It yeah. means 1,000th. Yeah. So a milli Gates is a thousandth of the fortune that Bill Gates made. <laughs> so I, uh, my money is uh, less than Bill Gates, a significant fraction of a milli Gates. How big did you expect it to get? Or what did you think it was going to do? And I, I actually like the one thing I don't know if people caught, and I, I want to make sure we, I like that you did consulting, which didn't really cost you anything. You had business, you made money. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe there's something else we can do. And seeing someone else kind of start doing it, you're like, oh, maybe there's something even bigger I can do here. But the turning point was we, got, we had a customer, Exxon Corporation, had invaded Silicon Valley with the intent of uh, starting uh, diversifying out of oil and gas into office systems. And they became our customer. And we made a deal with them that we would make four products for this Exxon subsidiary, uh, all internet products. The trick of the deal was we would retain the ownership of the four products. We, so we would license them, uh, fully paid, perpetual, worldwide license to this technology. And then we could sell it to other people. And we did. That was a $750,000 non-dilutive event. And that sort of got us thinking about non-dilutive events and then, and then <laughs> dilutive, dilutive events. Yeah. But it was that kick. And I remember during the fundraising for the company, I kept explaining how this is kind of naive, but I said, I said well, this is really a B round. This is really a B round. So the pre-money should be, you know, much higher than you're talking. And why, Bob, why is it a B round? Well, because our A round was this 750K that we got from Exxon. He said, that doesn't count. That's revenue. <laughs> well, isn't revenue better than yeah. other kinds of financing? How did y'all win? We had a time machine inside of Xerox. We got to go 10 years into the future and fill the company with personal computers, which didn't exist. We were the first company in the history of the world to have a computer on every desk, a PC that we built ourselves. And it needed a network. And I got the job of networking them, so I networked them. And then we filled Xerox with an internet. And then the time machine, that was the time machine, and then it came back into the present, left the company, and knew exactly what to do because we'd been there already. And that's how we got the advantage. So many, many companies entered around that time, but they didn't quite understand where it was going. And we tended to focus our investments in where it was going to go. And we focused on the networking of personal computers. I know it's kind of hard to believe. Yeah. There weren't any personal computers. You know, Steve Jobs had not founded Apple yet when all this was going on. Xerox. 
So that was our secret. That's how we won. We were fast. We, and we were fast because we knew what to do. And we knew what to do because we had lived in this uh, time machine for eight years. In your career, do you have any regrets? Would you change anything? Was it worth it? Well, certainly worth it. Uh, and if I had a regret, it's hard to, it worked out so well for me. My life is so good. I am reluctant to answer any questions about the past and changing it or regretting it because it's just hard to imagine it working out better. But uh, a partial answer to that question is I wish I had learned how to sell earlier. So I was forced into the job of head of sales and marketing as we were running out of cash in 19, 1982. So we were heading toward uh, Fume and uh, I got replaced as CEO and, <laughs> and given the job of head of sales and marketing with zero revenue. And uh, so I grew revenue from zero to a million a month in two years, and then we went public. So that was my contribution. But had I been better at selling before that, life would have been easier. For example, IBM gave me two chances. It paid me two grand each time to come to IBM and convince them to use Ethernet. And uh, I didn't do any research. I didn't unearth their considerations. I didn't know who the decision maker was. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I just went and gave the speech twice. Once in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey, and once in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And I was great. I won the argument. But as you know from selling, you can win the argument but lose the sale. And that's what I did. I didn't ask for the order, for example. I just gave my speech about how cool Ethernet was. And then IBM went off and did a competing technology, which it took me a couple, a couple of decades to kill. It's dead now. So Which one was that one? Called IBM Token Ring. Okay. And it was the uh, you know backed by the dominant computer company in the world, and uh, it was the main enemy of Ethernet, and Ethernet eventually triumphed. So I'm, I'm more obnoxious than I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, for someone starting out in their career, or things you wish you'd known, sounds like one of them is selling. Selling is. What are, are there other things you would for your kids or you know people? Let's go back to selling. There's many kinds of selling. So there's being VP of sales and marketing and knowing the, knowing the difference between sales and marketing, for example, is pivotal. And then there's being a sales manager, but then there's being a salesperson, but then there's selling yourself in a job interview. Or So selling is a very big word. My regret is I didn't know that earlier. I would have been a simpler life. Is that better or worse? I'm sure it could have been better. I think if I had been able to convince IBM to use Ethernet, my life would have been easier because I spent the next... Imagine going to work every day with your wife and your board of directors and your customers all telling you that your invention and your principal product is going to be killed shortly by IBM every day. And then 10 years goes by and the numbers... Oh, look at that. We sold a million of them. We made a card in, in 19... Uh, September of 82, we shipped a card. The first... You plug it into your IBM PC, and it puts yeah. the IBM PC on the internet, on the Ethernet, and thereby on the internet. We started selling those cards for about $1,000 each. I remember we started selling hundreds per month. Whoa, well, take 100 multiplied by 1,000. Yeah. That's pretty good. A couple of years later, we were selling a million a month. That's when the company became a multi-billion dollar company. Was the other thing for maybe the persistence that you had? Was it the chip on your shoulder that you wanted to beat IBM? What kept you going in, that, in those months where everyone, like, it sounded like a lot of people were surprised or doubted? 
locked out. It. That's pretty common though among startups. There's always a bunch of doubters, and the competitors are the, <laughs> are the leading doubters. And the in Silicon Valley, the competition is fierce. That's one of the nice things about Silicon Valley. So you were constantly competing against a bunch of people and. I learned, so I, I got, I taught some sales while being uh, head of sales. We had a competitor briefly called Interlan that made Ethernet cards for uh, PDP 11s and Unic and um, Vaxes. They had a head of sales, Betsy. She taught me this thing. I went in to see a customer and Betsy had left a piece of paper behind, which was a list of questions for them to ask me. <laughs> and just got buried by her. But anyway, I followed her around for a couple of years and learned everything she knew about selling. She's a very good salesperson. But that trick of leaving questions to go at the, your major vulnerabilities. Yeah, you should ask them about direct memory access. Yeah, you should ask them about uh, memory transfer and the width of the bus doing that and the data rates. You should ask them about it because she had strengths and we had strengths. And then she was picking on your weaknesses. Yeah, she got there first and she left them a list of questions to attack me. And it was, yeah. worked really well for her. But I learned it. I learned how to do that. Well, one, I'm just, is there other recommendations of where to learn sales? It turns out when I worked for Xerox, part of Xerox, it was a big monopoly, very profitable company. It had uh, development for its employees. So I took a course called Xerox Selling Skills. You can buy it today. It exists today. And then I took the course. At, uh, Xerox had a university, in, uh, its own university, uh, sales for not sales training, for training in general. So I took Managing Tasks Through People, and I took Xerox Selling Skills at Xerox. Not at MIT, not at Harvard, not at Stanford. I do think it's also interesting in your career, you were trained as an engineer, but then you ended up being very successful in a marketing role. Well, that was, yeah. So I had two undergraduate degrees from MIT. One was uh, electrical engineering. The other one was industrial management. And that was the way it was structured. That was long on entrepreneurship. The, it, we didn't call it, it was funny, we didn't call it entrepreneurship. There were no entrepreneurship programs then. Yeah. Uh, th those have been created since. I had some management experience. The company was an extremist when I got the job. When Bill became CEO and I became head of sales and marketing in uh, 1980, I keep forgetting the date here, but it's two years before we went public, would have been 82. So Bill joined in 81, and then he became CEO in 82, and then we went public in 84. So the company was, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, running out of cash. I had um, overestimated the adoption of Ethernet. And my punishment was I got to not be CEO anymore. And Bill took over as CEO and I became, as a measure of the desperation of the company, I became head of sales and marketing. And I had never done anything like that before. So it was a crash course in learning how to sell. And I immediately uh, recruited six regional sales managers, you know, Northeast, Southeast, North Central, South Central, Northwest, Southwest, and International. So Dave Colson got the job of international sales because he had an English accent. And Dave DePew got the job of Northeast regional sales because he, he was single and he could move that week. All bad decisions with good outcomes because they succeeded. But you shouldn't recruit people like that. <laughs> so after, after the company went public, how did money improve your life? Well, before we went public, I had a round of finance. It's complicated how it happened, but in short, I went to every employee, it was roughly 35 employees, with a yellow graph pad, and I wrote their name, 
And I asked them, how many shares of the company would they like to buy if they could? Of course, it's very, it's very unusual for employees to buy at that early stage. But all 35 of them went back to their families and they came back with a number, the number of shares they wanted to buy from me personally. And so I, uh, I was able to sell $250,000 worth of stock. To, so every employee had all the stock that they could afford. And by the way, the big buyer was our receptionist. She syndicated. So I had $250,000 and I went and deposited the Bank of America. And then I went to the ATM in uh, Stanford Shopping Center, yeah. where I live quite near there. And uh, went to the ATM and withdrew $500 just to see if it would work. You know, like, is the money actually there? That's sort of a comment on how unaccustomed I was to having money. Is I wanted to prove that I actually had it. And there it was. So we bought a big house. I was married already, but we had children. And uh, bought a Corvette. Summer house in Maine. We go to Maine every summer now. I have a boat. I've had it for 20-some years her name is Enthusiasm. I bought her. She's a great boat. Going back to the you know money, the kids are now taken care of. We've set up trust funds for them, modest. And now our goal is to spend all of our money before we die. And the big problem is we don't know exactly when we're going to die. So that's the problem. Well, we could arrange it. We could set a date certain and then just spend our money until we ran out on that date certain. Uh, we could do that. Uh, <laughs> and we're, uh, we make big donations to various things. My, my specialty is professorships at MIT. I'm in the process of, I have just finished endowing the third. Of, so there's three professors at MIT who are endowed by me. And I like to do it now but while I'm still alive. A lot too many people donate money after they die. That's yeah. no fun at all. But I, I got three professors at MIT, and I call them up, they answer. <laughs> and I ask them what they're doing, they tell me, and it's great to find out. And it's, I'm a trustee of MIT, so I continue to be involved there. And having my three professors, by the way, they're not my professors, but they do occupy an endowment over which I have no say whatsoever. <laughs> I saw somewhere recently, I was looking up J.D. Edwards. You know that, that company you've heard of him? Like JD yeah, they, they're they, stockbrokers. Yeah, or some, they did something. And this guy who donated it, he bought a building. They named it after him at some Midwestern school that he went to. And then, you know, that was years ago. And now it's like they changed the name already. And I was like, eh, it's nice to enjoy while you're here and you can see these things be benefited. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you, yeah MIT knows how to raise money. And they, um, you basically say, and by the way, if all the stuff I just finished running down doesn't really work out, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> What's the silliest thing you've spent on? Well, I almost killed myself with a fast boat. I bought a 50-knot boat. <laughs> and in Maine, there are very few sandbars. It's all granite that comes to the surface. And I always hit one at 50 knots. And if you hit a granite ledge at 50 knots, your boat virtually explodes. And I managed to at the last minute. So he sold that boat immediately after I almost killed everybody. I had to get better at navigation. I got better at navigation. What got invented was the GPS. <laughs> this was pre-GPS. So I was using you know, this kind of navigation, and I didn't see the rock there. So I'm whizzing 50 knots, bam, bam, bam. And then the water looked funny. It just looked funny. So I powered down, swerved to the right, and I could see the, as the boat turned. I could see the rocks in the water. That was a silly purchase, going to your question. That was yeah. a silly purchase. So I was, my current boat cruises at 12 knots, which is plenty. 
for what um, I'm doing. So that was a silly purchase. I'm probably think of some others if I give it some time. Yeah. Okay. Let's right. move on. Well, on the other side of that, what have, what's been the best things you've spent money on? Well, our kids went to good schools. That was the best investment. We were living in Silicon Valley, and our kids were attending very good Tony Silicon Valley schools. And one day we realized, as I'm dropping the kids off, that all the other people dropping the kids off at this school were blonde childcare professionals in German vehicles. And I'm online with my old Mercedes and the kids. And we decided that we didn't want to raise our kids in that environment with all the nannies involved and catered birthday parties and all that stuff. So we moved to rural Maine. That may have been a silly thing to do because, well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the schools in rural Maine are terrible. So that backfired. So then we started going to private schools in Maine. And then finally we moved to Boston and, and uh, sent our kids to prep schools in the Boston area. And that was money very well spent. How did you know schools were bad in Maine? My daughter did not know the times tables. And not only that, she had no interest in learning the times tables. That kicked off our discussion. What are they teaching these kids at school? They allowed sports, but they would allow no one to keep score. Weird. The kids were all keeping score, but the teachers weren't. Oh, and then I donated a 50 kilobit per second circuit with access to the internet. And it sat unused for a year because the teachers... What they said was they were afraid of pornography creeping into the classroom. What they actually were afraid of is the kids knew how to use these machines and they didn't. Mm. And so that, so eventually I, I turned off the 50 kilobit. It was 50 kilobits was really fast in those days. So that was a silly, that was a silly expenditure right there. I was thinking that the internet would be adopted by this K-8 school in rural Maine and it wasn't. It was, and then when they, when they were offered a laptop for each child, the teachers wanted the ceilings fixed in the school before the money got spent on the laptops for the kids. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yeah. I, mean, I was thinking about how you showed your dad your pay stub for when your kids showed you one day their pay stub. Well, my um, daughter went to the University of Southern California after um, prep school. And then uh, she went to work for Facebook. And she worked there for eight years. There's a funny coincidence in our family, and that's the, one of the four. She worked at Facebook for eight years, then she left, and now she has, uh, she started her own little company. Our son went to Boston University and then went to Apple, and he worked at Apple for eight years, and then he left after eight years, and now he's in business with our daughter. My wife, it turns out, when she graduated from Michigan, she went to work for Sunset Magazine in Menlo Park, California, where she worked for eight years. I, after graduating from the Harvard University and MIT, went to work at Xerox for eight years. So there's a pattern there uh, in our family. Yeah, it's like a postdoc or a graduate school, yeah. eight years, and then you're ready to go off and do business. Uh, and, that, and by the way, that's manifested what I uh, got involved in teaching at the University of Texas. For my first five years, I was focused on developing the infrastructure for students to learn how to start companies. And then I realized it was good that they knew that, but their companies weren't any good. They didn't know anything. Then I switched to working with professors starting companies. Of course, the professors have students, so they're, they're involved, but they're involved through the, the work of the professor, which has typically has some depth to it. Do people treat you differently before and after 3Con, before and after you, made, you earned money? Yeah, I became famous. I had to develop tests 
for, you know, that goes to your head. I watched, I watched as little as $100,000 going to one of our engineers. I watched it ruin his life. Just 100000 so not, not millions, just 100000 So I began, uh, as I uh, got richer over time, trying to figure out how not to get corrupted by it. Here's a simple example, a simple rule. If there's a bunch of you standing around and everyone's introducing, hi, Tom, hi, Noah, good to see you, Noah, and that all finishes, if you haven't said your name during that introduction period, you need an ego fix right there because you assume that everyone knows who you are. So that's a little test I perform. I watch. Did you say your name or do you assume that people uh, know who you are because you're so important? Yeah, it's very easy uh, to be corrupted by money. And as I said, I remember this kid, Sonny, engineer, 100 grand, drugs, disappeared. And it was just 100K that got him. A sad story. If you're going to be successful and you start succeeding, then you have to start paying attention to succeeding well. Bill Gates, who I admire greatly, even though I frequently criticize him, he once said a wise thing was, it's going to be harder for him to give away his money well than it was to make it. He's doing a damn good job of giving it away right now, I think. By the way, he and I are not close. I, when I was a columnist, I attacked Microsoft for um, antitrust behavior, anti-competitive behavior, and Bill and I had a falling out at that time. <laughs> but I still admire what he does. For some reason, last night, I just got, I don't know if I'm not feeling well or what it is, but I was like, what if I lost all of it? Right, like this house, which is empty, so I guess there's not really much to lose. But, you know, the, the house or like this company, like... Oh, I know exactly what it was. At AppSumo, we're hiring a lot more people. And then we're having these raise pools. So every year now, people's salaries get raised. And I'm like, that's raising the expenses. It's not guaranteed to raise the revenues. And so it definitely <laughs> gave me a little bit more of Because then, you know, that cost isn't going down. Their salaries aren't going down, all these things. Yep, salaries do not go down. Yeah, it's one way. And so it definitely gave me a little bit more anxiety last night. And I want people that are coming in paid well. And it was just, um, yeah, it made me feel a little stressed. Well, like, here's two anxiety stories. While we were transitioning from consulting to product, I wondered what I needed. And I concluded that I needed revenue of 25K per month. And if only I had 25K per month, everything would be fine. But I didn't have 25K per month during that transition because we were run, ramping our consulting dollars down before our product went up. So 25K was my nut. That was the number I needed to be happy. And then some years later, we, we had an annual picnic every summer in July. And uh, around 1984 or so, I went to the picnic again, and there were 2,000 people there. And many of them were this big, and some of them were this big. And all of them would be going to college or not based on the decisions we made on Monday morning at our operations meeting. So we stopped screwing around at our operations meeting. <laughs> we took it much more seriously. Yeah. Because we realized we were affecting the lives of these little people who had come to the picnic. Speaking of the number 2,000, I used to have an all-hands meeting every Friday at 10. We would have coffee and bagels and cream cheese at 10 on Friday, every Friday. The whole company, and more than the whole company, that people could bring guests, like customers came to this meeting. Prospects came to this meeting. People we were recruiting came to this meeting. And then we would go around and everyone would share the news. Sales would say, you know, celebrate their sales and engineering with this. And, blah, blah, blah. and it was really cool. One day, our HR person, Deborah, came to me and said, Bob, we can't have this meeting anymore. We have 2,000 people. 
and we don't have a room big enough to hold 2,000 people. So you're going to have to do this meeting four times. We had four buildings in Santa Clara. And so it, it switched. So then I did an all hands meeting four times, you know, uh, Friday morning, 9 30, 9, uh, 10 o'clock, 10 30, four times. So as, as you succeed, everything scales up and changes. And, and the things you used to do at, when you had 25 employees are different from the things you do when you have 2,000 employees. Yeah. The biggest number I can remember 3Com having was 12,000 employees. But I think it got bigger after I left. Did you ever worry about losing it all or it would go away? Yep. I'm from New York, so I worry about everything all the time. Uh, now you worry, even as big as 3Com get, we always had uh, deadly competitors. And it's one of the things I like about America and Silicon Valley is that competition reigns supreme. And thanks to competition, we make rapid progress. And when there's no competition, there's no progress. I have a picture of the telephone that AT&T sold in 1950, the Model 500, made by Western Electric, their subsidiary. They were a monopoly. And then I have a picture of the phone in 1984. 50? 84? It's the same phone. <laughs> <laughs> the Model 500. They sold it from 1950 to 1984. So we had to kill that monopoly in, 19, in the 80s to build the internet. We had to kill two monopolies. We had to kill AT&T and we had to kill IBM in order to build the internet. Kill the monopolies yeah. of those two companies. Was there anyone close to kind of like killing you guys or you're like, oh my God, like this? Well, Cisco is the one that got away. So Cisco was founded the year we went public. We had an observer on our board. When we went public, he left our board and founded Cisco. And then Cisco passed us after a while, uh, maybe 10 years later. They were the one that got away. And so Cisco still exists, obviously, and they're a big, successful. And 3Com is now part of uh, HP. I worked at Intel in Santa Clara, and I grew up there. I remember the 3Com. Uh, there were 3Com buildings off of, uh, was it 101, the 3Com buildings? At one point, we had four in Santa Clara right on the, on the Bowers side. Yeah. But then we built a brand new headquarters up past where the Levi, Levi Stadium wasn't there, but up past Levi Stadium, there's a gorgeous headquarters. But it, uh, the company occupied its new headquarters the year I left, so I never occupied that building. What are your most proud of moments of your career? Going from zero to a million dollars a month as head of sales. During that time, I had to figure out how to sell. I had to recruit a sales team. We did it. I am curious, like in terms of highest moments, like not going public or the, some of the post-career experiences. Like it, it's interesting because you, your first thing was it was almost the hardest, or at least the hardest that I'm aware of, which was, was getting your doing the million month in sales when it was at zero. Uh, you may have heard there's a book called Zero to One. So yeah. Zero to One's hard. <laughs> zero to a million even harder. Zero to a million's <laughs> even harder. But imagine that we went public with uh, profitable on about twelve million a year in revenue with a yeah. $100 million valuation. So we didn't get a chance to be a, a unicorn because we were profitable too soon. Well, I'm just thinking more that you were, that that's the first moment that comes to your mind, not going public, not being you know a professor. It's interesting why that, that was. Well, it's very hard. Yeah. I have actually been to every Ramada Inn. <laughs> <laughs> the one I remember is the one in Schenectady because GE Research was in Schenectady, New York, and I was selling them Ethernets, and I used to stay at that Ramada Inn. And on Thursday nights, they had a band, and it was a damn good band, and they, did, they covered the Beatles. 
And they were really good. I remember checking in there on Thursday night. And then Friday morning, I had to face my customers, you know, ornery <laughs> upstate New York engineers for breakfast. You know, it was really tough. But then I would go from there to the Ramada Inn in, um, in Ohio and then the one in... Uh, uh, Are you an owner of Ramada Inn now? Is that your next highest moment in your career? No, I have no interest in owning <laughs> Ramada. But I, what I used to do is I use a yellow graph paper that engineers often use. And at the beginning of every month, I would put the sales total goal for the month up here. And I would draw a straight line like this. And then each day... The orders would come in. I would put a new dot. And as long as I was above this line, I was happy. And I, when I fell, when our team fell below that line, I was sad. And my morale was that piece of paper. And we, we kept it updated every day. We had a bell on the back. So when we got an order, we would ring the bell for every $1,000 at the bells. But then we had to stop that because the, bill, the orders got too big. So we had to stop doing that. Zero to a million a month in revenue. That was my life's accomplishment. What do you think after that wasn't your something you were proud of? I left three years later than I should have. I left after 13 years. And I realized the last three of those years, I was hurting the company rather than helping it. In the end, I was VP of corporate marketing. And my principal activity was arguing with our regional managers over advertising. They all wanted to have their own ads, write their own copy, choose their own logos, their own colors, everything. And I was the corporate brand Nazi. And I had traveled around the world convincing French people that they should use our brand, you know, our logo. Here's the, here's the artwork for our logo. You should use this. And that was uh, not work that I was uniquely qualified to do. But I did know the difference between sales and marketing. And that's, that's one thing you need to learn early. What's that? There are many, many differences. There's not the same thing. Most people think sales and marketing are the same thing. But marketing has most, is mostly uh, incoming and sales is mostly outgoing. Two things I'm curious for there is like, how did you figure out it was time to go? I think for a lot of people, especially if you're starting a company, you're like, am I quitting too soon in it? Have I stayed too long in it? All right. So in uh, 1982, I convened a meeting of the board of directors, of which I was the chairman and a large shareholder to decide who was going to be the CEO. And we decided Bill Krauss was going to be the CEO and I was not going to be. So that was the first time my board rejected me. And then 10 years later, I came back a similar. This is how I left. Three of us were designated as succession candidates. And I was, surprisingly, I was one of the three. I was running the biggest revenue generator of the company, the hardware division. All those other guys like software. But I generated all the profits. But I didn't win. Eric won. So twice, my board of directors chose somebody else to be CEO of the company. And both times, they were right in, in uh, the way it played out. There were two very good choices were made. And I'm not surprised because I built that board. I recruited those board members <laughs> one by one. So I guess I was proud of the board. And it, uh, one of the important functions of a board is to tell you the truth. Self-awareness is so hard. Very rarely does someone say, you know, I really can't do this job anymore. I don't have the skills and uh, plus I'm getting tired. No one never does that. You have to fire their asses. And uh, that's the purpose of the board is to fire your ass when, uh, when you're uh, no longer good. For, you need to be firing on all cylinders. It's the job of the board to be sure the big cylinder is firing correctly. So twice a board that I recruited chose somebody else to be the CEO and it worked. And both times I, I can attest they were right. Bill Krauss the first time and Eric Benamou the second time and the company went like a rocket ship after each of them took over. So it was great. 
how did you check your ego to explore your career and life afterwards? Because like, I know for me with AppSumo, and I've had it in the past, we're like, am I the CEO? I'm the founder. And what, where, who am I now? And and then also how to explore, what, what, you know, where to take your career afterwards, after like that major change. So I left 3Com uh, when Eric uh, took over as CEO. It's It's good practice for people who might conflict with his authority to leave the company. So I left to get out of the way. I was still the founder of the company. And Eric did fabulous work. So then I became a journalist. And I wrote a weekly column for a million people. And uh, that was really fun. And then after that, I became a venture capitalist for 10 years. And that was really fun. And then I became a professor for 10 years, 11 years. And that was fun. And now I'm looking for my next 10-year gig. How did you figure out these careers? How did you figure out what to do? Oh, it's like a, it was like an attempted docking. You know, you just keep, you try to dock with various opportunities. And then one of them clicks and locks in. One thing I'm pretty sure of is I've gone to meta. I mean, I was an engineer, an engineering manager, division manager, CEO, journalist, venture capitalist. I am so meta now. So I want to go. I'm pretty sure I want my next gig to be less meta. So I don't want to be a professor again, but I would, I do, I'm interested in doing research. So maybe doing, being a non-professorial professorial researcher might be. You can give a, a fourth chair for yourself. You can do that, actually. <laughs> I'm sure they have ways of taking money. There's, yes, they're very resourceful in taking your money, but I'm not going to do that. What kind of business are your kids starting? So they're working together on a, on a new company? Yeah, they do. It's called The Working Team. It's the two of them, and they do MVPs. So people want to start companies. They go in, and Julia is the Facebook um, revenue generator market. She's the chief. They, we didn't have this title when I was in the Valley. She's the chief product officer, and he's the coder. And they go into a small company and they develop the MVP with, uh, it, by the way, it's different in every case, but it's, uh, in short, they team up with the company to do the MVP. It's cool. It's kind of a little after your footsteps, consulting, and then maybe that'll turn into some hardware yeah. product. And they, they get offered equity and they agonize about whether to take equity, whether to take cash. And the first few deals, they took equity and now they want to, now they're realizing that they, they would like some cash too. So they're looking for mixed packages. And it's kind of fun. Every once in a while, one of them will call me up for advice. And that's fun to give it. I'm curious what advice, because you've now started companies, taught, and then what, what advice do you tell your kids? About starting companies? Yeah, the one in the working team. Well, they did their eight years at Facebook and Apple, so they're ready to start it. So go for it. And they've considered various kinds of... I think what's going to happen is they're going to eventually lock. That is, you know, each engagement they have now is like an attempted... Hmm. lock one of them is going to click and they're going to give up the working team and go start a, a more specific company Product. awesome but they don't have to do that that's just my guess is what will happen are you into sailing sounds like you enjoyed a lot my 12 and a half foot sailboat <laughs> is, that, is that a schooner no mine's a little sloop a schooner has two masts the stern mass is bigger than the forward mass so uh jim clark have you heard of jim clark yeah yeah so his, I ran into his boat uh, at Christmas at an island called Petite St. Vincent, and his boat, Athena, showed up. It's 250 feet long, has three masts. It's a schooner, in other words, the back mask is the biggest one. Okay. But then it has a windjammer bow rig. He can run three jibs off the bow of this beautiful yacht. But he wasn't on the yacht when it showed up. He charters it. And the charter was Johnny Ive, who's the <laughs> recent 
Apple guy. So Johnny Ive came to the island where we were staying with his entourage from this gorgeous boat. Did My you... boat's smaller. It's only 12. Oh, so on, on your 12-foot boat, you're able to make it to the island? What island are you referring this to? This Petit? Petit. Oh, no, that's a, a resort. So we were there at a resort. And we have an island in Maine. Uh, we have a camp on an island in Maine. Okay. And she, she, um, she stays there. So I circumnavigate our island camp, and then there's another island over here called Hurricane Island, and that's the one to circumnavigate. So every summer I try to circumnavigate Hurricane Island with a 12-and-a-half-foot sailboat. The trouble is a 12-and-a-half-foot sailboat won't go more than about four miles an hour with a good wind, but the tides in Maine are much faster than that. So if you're not careful, you can sail backwards. The water's moving this way at, at seven knots, and you're going this way at four knots, which means you're going backwards. You know. Thank you for taking the time to come do this, Mr. Metcalf. Appreciate it. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did sharing it with you. Go check out the video if you haven't done it yet. It's Asking 80-Year-Old Millionaires if it was worth it on my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Also, next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go fishing together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan or slide in my DMs and let me know what you thought of this episode. I love hearing from y'all. Also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. It is a bomb newsletter. We send it once a week. Three simple things. Makes your life better. Subscribe at sendfox.com slash Noah. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. And also go create your own free newsletter at sendfox.com. Finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these episodes. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, especially you because you bugged me to finish this intro, which I wouldn't have done because I was busy with someone. You know that. But Love that you fall through. Thank you, Hubert, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen. Shout out Isaac, too, from the Dork team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, shout out to the team who created our billboard in the Austin airport. That's JR, Victor, Max, Kellen, Celeste, and Nick. Uh, very cool to have a billboard up. If y'all had a billboard, it, it's, it is very cool to see. Have a charming day. What's your least favorite thing about our intern, George? Just kidding. You guys want to know him. But what is your favorite fish?